0: Valerie's my mother's name. Rush is for white
1: suburban boys. Anybody remember cassettes? My tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey everybody, this is the soundtrack series. Stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi. Oi to the world! Ah, that's the song I couldn't think of. I was I was trying to think of this song for like an hour and a half, like 90 minutes. My life is hard, but just now as I was doing this intro, for whatever reason, I remembered it. It just popped into my head. I don't know what that's about, but I'm glad it happened. Anyway, hello. This is the second to last episode of the Soundtrack Series podcast for 2014. Gotcha. I didn't I know I didn't. Sorry about that. I'm not I'm not great at twists. Anyway, This is our second to last episode, as I just said, and our last episode for the year will be in two weeks, on December 23rd, and that one is gonna be a biggie because as you know, we're part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media, and so our next episode is going to be part of the Infinite Guest year-end extravaganza. And so all of our shows are going to share some of their best material and and look back at 2014. I I know that for soundtrack series, we're going to look back at three of our best stories from the year. And and keep in mind that this is a year that included a few shows at the Museum of the Moving Image, a pride show at Stonewall, a few trips to Austin, a summer show in Philly, some joint shows with the Bonnie and Maud film podcast. So out of all of that, three, three, one, two, three of the best stories. I can't, this is a lot of pressure to to pick just three, quite frankly. Plus in that episode, I think I'll throw in there my personal favorite rant that I did from this past year, so buckle in for a treat. But to learn more about what everybody is going to be doing for their year-end episodes, follow Infinite Guest on Twitter, just at Infinite Guest. So remember 45 seconds ago uh, when, when I was I started this whole episode by yelling oi to the world in your ear? I, I wanted to say, though, it's because I've been spending all day making a Christmas music playlist on Spotify. And I and the reason I wanted to put that on and I couldn't remember what it was and and that was bothering the crap out of me. But look at me, look at me being elfin, making a Christmas playlist. And honestly, you know what? I'm just trying to keep busy. I I actually just a couple of days ago had an accident. Uh, nothing, nothing, nothing big, nothing serious. I I was running and I and and to run, not I was rushing to get somewhere. Cause don't run, but I was purposely running. And I'm nursing shin splints. Here's the very, very boring part of the podcast, so feel free to fast forward. But I'm nursing shin splints, so I was not running the way I usually run. And I tripped. And I know for a second I was completely airborne. It's like when you trip and then your body tilts. So now that you are completely parallel to the ground. And so it was like trip, tilt, legs not under me, flop. Just a straight up belly flop onto concrete for which my knees took pretty much all of the impact of that fall. I didn't hit my head, nothing else is really wrong, but my knees, holy crap. My right knee is just a bruise, just one large bruise on my right knee and my left knee is a big scrape and both of them hurt like hell. And so I'm also trying not to run for the next few days, maybe week and it's driving me bananas. So I'm making playlists, you know, so that when I'm ready to run again, I'll have all new ones. But so I'm not, I mean, I, I threw a Christmas playlist in there but I, I don't know that I would run to Christmas music. That's a whole other level. No, Christmas music is just for the house. And I if I'm talking about it, as far as Christmas music goes, I have to say, and this is just my personal preference, but I prefer the classics to, like, new Christmas. And by new, I even kind of mean Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas. My cutoff for Christmas music being written is probably about 1987. Though, sidebar, if I brought up all I want for Christmas did you hear Mariah Carey's unedited not auto-tuned isolated vocals on all I want for Christmas from I think it was the Christmas tree lighting here in Rockefeller Center oh my if not I I would suggest listening to them not not to laugh at somebody else she spent years singing hard a lot give her some space so if I do recommend listening to those isolated vocals and I do I would say listen to those and then immediately listen to David Lee Roth's isolated vocals on Running With The Devil. And you will note that when you can compare it up against something else, someone else's isolated vocals, neither is better nor worse than the other. They're they're about even, Mariah and David Lee Roth, and that's a place I'm happy being. So anyway, that was a sidebar. But I do prefer classic Christmas music, Vince Guaraldi Trio, this... Ray Conniff, We Wish You a Merry Christmas album that my parents had when I was growing up, and so that has now just become the Christmas album I listen to. Andy Williams. Okay, I, this this list is pretty white so far, admittedly. Bing Crosby, Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Eartha Kitt, of course. And then I like the Bruce Springsteen, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, The Waitresses, Wham, and The Vandals, I guess, if we're talking about Oi to the World, which is 1996, so I guess my cutoff is not 1987. But anyway, 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 I prefer mostly a 1940s or 1950s sound when it comes to Christmas music. Newer stuff isn't bad. It's not. It's just not my thing. But if we're talking about bad Christmas songs and we are now, I would put $20, not the bank, but not a buck 50, that if I polled 10 people and I said, tell me what you think the worst Christmas song is. After convincing them that No Wonderful Christmas Time is actually a really good Christmas song, they would probably say the worst Christmas song is that one about, I think it's just called Christmas Shoes. The guy's singing, it's from his point of view, and and he's observing. He's standing online at some store, and there's a kid in front of him who wants to buy shoes for his mother because she's dying, and she needs to look good to meet Jesus tonight because, you know, Jesus is a big shoe queen and also it's Christmas terrible so depressing and not fun depressing like wham's last Christmas because there's this glimmer of hope just out and out horrible and worse than that I think though is marshmallow world because for a song that you would think would be all about imagery and how looking outside on a winter day is like looking at it from the window of a gingerbread house in an entirely gingerbread house neighborhood in other words a song all about a world of food it isn't the only things they come up with that snow looks like are marshmallows and whipped cream and not one mention of frosting at all. That's crap. And I'm not buying a world is yum yummy because you tell me it's yum yummy. I need more food descriptions. And this song ain't got it. Hence, it's the worst. But at least it's not the creepiest song. That honor, of course, you saw this coming, goes to baby it's cold outside. And much has been said already about this song being creepy and inappropriate just just Google this song title and salon and you'll see what I'm talking about so but I wanted to look more into it I was just curious for myself just this very questionable holiday ditty what's behind it and exactly how popular is this now it's not the only one of its kind certainly a date rapey song maybe the only Christmas one but I, I always had doubts about say Shaboom the chords and crew cuts 1954 song about a guy Convincing a girl to have sex with him or all right. I'll play along since this is 1954 sure go for a soda with him Please the bridge is every time. I look at you something is on my mind If you do what I want you to baby, we'd be so fine gross And I was always also totally creeped out by into the night That's the if I could fly I'd pick you up song though if you don't know the song more than that chorus, then I am happy to report that the very first line of the song is, she's just 16 years old, leave her alone, they say. Ugh, shudder. So, Baby It's Cold Outside is in some creepy company. And if you don't know it, because you somehow managed to avoid it all these years, or because, oh wow, maybe you're a time traveler from Little House on the Prairie time, and may I be the first to say welcome, basically, the song is written as a duet. Though, each part is kind of its own song, independently you you could sort of do it that way it works musically I I think like well like Barbra Streisand and Judy Garland singing get happy happy days are here again or Bing Crosby and David Bowie doing little drummer boy peace on earth only while those duets just sort of happily fit over one another this duet is meant as a conversation between two people a man and a woman or as the parts are written on the printed score a wolf and a mouse where the woman is all I have to leave and the man is all not before we have sex you don't all right now Baby It's Cold Outside was written by Frank Lesser in 1944 he premiered it with his wife Lynn at a housewarming party they sang it nearing the end of the night to signal to people that it's getting close to you don't have to go home but you can't stay here it was their version of the wedding DJ playing Donna Summer's Last Dance but then he sold it to MGM and pretty much everyone has sung it since, in every possible combination. It was written for, it's meant for, the woman to be the one leaving, and the man convincing her to stay. But as early as 1948, people played around with that gender casting, and in 1949, actually, the next year, Bing Crosby and Jimmy Stewart sang it together on Bing Crosby's radio show as a, quote, humorous duet because ha, 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 Men flirting with men! That's crazy! What's next? Women with jobs during peacetime? Seriously, everyone has performed this duet at some point. Probably even you and me at some drunken karaoke night. I'm sure of it, but everyone Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Jordan, Esther Williams and Ricardo Montalban, Ray Charles and Dionne Warwick, Bette Midler and James Conn. I feel like I'm pitching Halloween costume ideas to my boyfriend. Okay, Robert Palmer and Carney Wilson. That's my favorite one so far. Both duet and costume idea. Liza Minnelli and Alan Cumming. Christina Aguilera and CeeLo Green. Too soon. I know, too soon. John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John with Travolta playing the mouse part. Oh my. Bebe Newworth and John Lithgow because I always wanted to know what this would sound like sung by beloved stars of NBC sitcoms. Drew Carey and Shirley Jones because I had the same question about ABC sitcoms. Brian Setzer and ann Margaret because Gap Ad. Zoe Deschanel and M. Ward because Hipsters. Edina Menzel and Michael Bublé because Suburban Moms. Dolly Parton and Rod Stewart because Kenny Rogers was busy. And it's been all over TV and movies. The premiere of Saturday Night Live in 1986, where it was sung by Buster Poindexter and Sigourney Weaver because 1986. It was on The Muppet Show. It was in Elf. It was on Keen Peel. It was on an episode of Blossom where Mayim Bialik sang it with Ted Wass, and if you don't remember, that was a father-daughter relationship. This is a very popular song associated with a very popular holiday about a very terrifying thing. Coercion! If, if we're feeling Christmassy and we don't wanna go that toe over to sexual assault. And while some might feel that people who think this song is questionable are reading too much into it, that the woman is just playing coy, it's totally harmless, She doesn't really have to leave. She's saying these things to drop hints. Fine. Then how is this? Why would she find this D-bag attractive in the first place? If we just go on the lyrics that she sings in the song as the mouse, there is no indication of an actual attraction based on her own words. The only things she indicates in the lyrics about enjoying her stay is that the evening was, quote, nice, and the wolf, The man, whatever, was, quote, grand. Mm, that is so, I'll call you. But most of what she says is about her leaving. She finds more good reasons to go than to stay. Who's going to be worried about her? How late it's getting? Who's going to talk about it? You don't get the idea from her that it's a pro-con list situation with a whole lot of pros. It's just pros. You weren't outwardly abusive, and the alternative is hypothermia. And you can't blame her because as previously alluded to this guy is a major debag even if he's fine you know what even if he is not a sexual predator take that off the table entirely in his words he's too needy he's too bossy he's grappling at straws like inclement weather to to make her have to spend time with him rather than want to spend time with him and he is completely wrapped up in how her leaving will affect him he says How can you do this to me? And he says, what's the sense in hurting my pride? Gross! Gross. So even if it's not about coercion, or anything inappropriate, it's at the very least about one person trying to politely get out of a situation with a really annoying, unattractive other person who just won't take no for an answer. And that's not very festive. And frankly, there are a million other songs I would rather hear Liza and Alan sing.
0: Skis, shop, and counter. Most interesting. Add his number, but never the time. Most of anyone pass along those lines. So deck those halls, trim those trees, raise up cups of Christmas here. I just need to catch my
1: breath. Christmas by myself this year. Yes, like this one. Yes, like Christmas wrapping by the waitresses. I'd hear anybody sing this song. And it's my go to for holiday karaoke. It's not. Who am I kidding? It's that Barbra Streisand version of Jingle Bells where it's the question where it's Jingle Bells. All right. Our story for this episode is from musician A.K. A.K. grew up on movie sets because both of her parents work in film. But this is her story about the first time she appeared and sang in a feature film and why that song is not playing over the movie's end credits.
0: Oh, I've got a home in the glory I am a musician, but I actually I grew up in LA. My mom's a set decorator, and my dad's a production designer for film and TV and commercials. And I grew up meandering through film sets, eating lots of craft service candy and donuts, as my mother reminded me on the phone today. She said, don't forget to tell them about the donuts. Um, lots of donuts. And stealing markers from the art department for my projects, which I'm sure made everyone really happy. On the set of Dance With Me, a ballroom dancing movie with Vanessa Williams, I got jam all over my clothes. Clothes, and the costuming girls gave me crushed velvet silver hot pants and a matching crop top that my like, belly showed and I wore it so much all the way through sixth grade that my mom actually like, had to throw it away in the trash to get rid of it. On the Fast and the Furious, I spent my summer standing in the windows of the fake stores on the Universal Studios back lot and like pretending to be a dead mannequin and then coming to life as tour buses went by. Um, I also found the employee's entrance to Jurassic Park and I rode it every day, once a day, five days a week for two months. <laughs> <laughs> I have loved and lived and like breathed movies my whole life. And I really wanted to be in them for a really long time. My dad even arranged like a sit down with Britney Spears' acting coach on the set of Crossroads. <laughs> my parents also worked on that movie. But I found music, and I began to really like seriously pursue that as a career. And I kind of just gave up all those dreams. And then two years ago, my dad was working on a film called Sweetwater in New Mexico. And the directors, these identical twins, Noah and Logan Miller, they wanted a singer for a street scene. And my dad actually left at the opportunity and played them my music. I got a phone call from them in the car going, fuck yeah, this is fucking great, this is fucking brilliant. That's how they talk all the time at dinner parties also. When my parents offered them booze, they go, fuck yeah, at the dinner table. So they want to be on the movie and also on the soundtrack. So I bought a ticket for New Mexico, and then I like completely freaked out. Sweetwater is a Western revenge slasher movie movie. If you are confused, so is everyone else. It has a 27% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) It's a little confusing. It is the story of newly reformed prostitute Sarah, played by January Jones, who goes on a bloody massacre following the murder of her immigrant farmer husband by the local cult leader. Both of them are pursued by the enigmatic Sheriff Jackson, played by Ed Harris. At his, at his definitely oddest in many ways. In the scene I'm in, Sheriff Jackson arrives in Sarah's town to dispose of his predecessor. And in a beatdown worthy of a WWF TV special, the old sheriff is sent packing. And I am called upon to sing and return the town to its normal street music self. <laughs> Prior to the shoot, I spent five days frolicking in New Mexico with my dad, my new boyfriend at the time. Noah and Logan in January. Getting d- drunk with my dad and my boyfriend was an especially odd situation. We went swimming in Lake Abiquiu during a thunderstorm and my dad never put his pants back on and rented me a car in his underwear the rest of the day <laughs> with my new boyfriend. We drove into Ghost Ranch searching for a monastery that maybe brewed beer. It didn't. <laughs> And we had a huge party with a lot of the cast and crew. And January made it her mission to get me drunk enough to play the piano and sing. And since Santa Fe is at 7,000 feet, that happened pretty much immediately. And we just it was the warmest, friendliest cast and crew I've ever encountered, probably because we weren't in LA. On the day of shooting, my dad and I drove together to my hair and makeup call at 530 in the morning on Finanza Creek Ranch, which is 80,000 acres of high desert just outside of San Fr- uh, Santa Fe. And it is a fake Western town right smack in the middle where they filmed cowboys and aliens and like a whole bunch of other things. The wind was blowing really hard. It was pitch black outside. And the dust just kind of swirled around the headlights, making it really hard to see. And finally, we spotted base camp. Floodlights were shining down on this small encampment of trailers and tents and pickup trucks. And it looked like a wagon trail in the middle of the night. In hair and makeup, everybody brought me coffee, told me how the day would go, and then brought me to the tiniest dressing room. And I put on my costume, which was 20 pounds of green velvet. By the way, it was August in New Mexico. <laughs> and I, then I just waited. Anyone who's ever worked on a movie or visited a set will tell you that there's this like, mind-numbing amount of sitting around if you are not like a DP. You sit around while people respectfully disagree. You sit around and you watch the filming, you sit around and wait for the animal wranglers to show up, you sit around and wait while the scenes reset, you sit around while the actress says, "Well, I really don't think my character would say that because I just took this screenwriting class." And, you know, it just goes on forever and ever and ever. And my movie experience up to that point can really be like summed up as art department child waiting for lunch. But suddenly, I found myself waiting for like my turn and my scene and everyone's wishing me good luck. And I didn't actually really get nervous until the close-up shot came, and it was time to sing. By then it was 3 p.m. I'd been in costume for eight hours. The sun was directly overhead. It was 100 degrees outside. So first the DB comes and like stares at me through three little sort of telescopic things, and he like hollers out, and lighting guys set up these 10-foot square things to reflect the light and block the light. Then they built a little track for the dolly shot, and the track leads like right up to you. And they say, don't miss your mark, but my mark is a rock, and it's New Mexico and there's a lot of rocks so I'm like okay fuck I hope that's the right rock I can't fucking move so they build the dolly shot there's like a little chair on top of the little train tracks that they built and a huge film camera and the DP is sitting on the little chair looking through the film camera at you and then everybody like these guys move it really slowly towards your face and there's this black bottomless giant eye of a lens looking down at your soul and you have to pretend to be totally normal but also somebody else at the same time and if you fuck up 200 people are going to have to wait while you do the whole fucking thing again, and it's totally terrifying. I was really proud of myself, I did two takes, and when I finished singing, the entire cast and crew like whistled and cheered, it was just the most amazing experience, and I felt really proud to be there, such a professional. And then I had to do it 15 more times. They asked me to do two songs. One was a song for a scene where January stands topless in a river and shoots two guys, and the other one was for the closing credits. January was going to stand naked in front of a fire getting her revenge, but it was gonna be my moment of glory, my song, playing over the end of the movie at the end of the credits. So a few months later, I walked into a studio in Van Nuys to record those two songs. And there were all these platinum and gold tapes along the wall for Megadeth and no effects. And I thought, like, am I in the right place? But it turned out I was. And we recorded all the vocals while Noah and Logan, the director, sat upstairs drinking beers. And every once in a while, they would push a button on the intercom and go, this is fucking awesome, in my ear while I was singing. From there, the producer took my like folky little country song and like turned it up to 11. When I got final tracks, a few days later, I squeed like I'd been asked to junior prom. The sound was so epic, as far as folk music goes, and it was gonna be played in movie theaters, and people were gonna see it, and all those people who were terrible me in high school were gonna see it too, and they'd be like, what is this glorious music? I went really far. If I learned anything from my time on the set of Crossroads, Stigmata, Powder, it's that not all dreams of success come true. A month or so later, I got a call from the directors. Another dad had outdated my dad. A backer of the film stipulated that his son's country song was to be used over the closing credits. But maybe here with all of you, this can be my second chance. This song can go out into the world, and who knows, maybe you'll watch Sweetwater on Netflix and judge the final song a little bit. Just, just a little bit, just for me. Thanks
1: oh yes AK and like I said to her at the show I love a true alto there's just so few of us and that's it that's our episode for this go round this has been the soundtrack series and as I was telling you before our next episode on December 23rd is part of the Infinite Guest year-end extravaganza. A look back at 2014 with three of our favorite stories from an incredible year. And as always, you can find us on Stitcher, you can find us in the American Public Media section on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, find us on Facebook. We are everywhere. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Thanks for listening.